Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the start of a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to everybody out there for being uh, with us today. This first full week of June has got a lot happening in political uh, news. Later this week, state Republicans will gather in Columbus for their annual uh, convention, although not all of them are uh, going. We have at least three new uh, candidates announcing for the White House, Republican candidates. Uh, this week. Um, Today, a huge story in the city of Atlanta, the city council will meet to discuss and vote on the city's share of funding for the Atlanta Police Training Center, a very controversial center. And the city hall is closed today. City workers at city hall have been told to stay home because they're expecting huge demonstrations. It's kind of one of those days where I was looking over the rundown and thinking, where do we start? But because we're a statewide show, I think we're going to take a look first and foremost at what's happening as uh, Republicans prepare for their convention in Columbus and all the controversy surrounding the split in the Georgia Republican Party that the convention uh, basically will show us quite clearly. So let me get right to introducing the panel and we'll begin our conversation. It's Monday. My partner from the AJC, Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column, which you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and, of course, oversees the jolt at AJC.com. Patricia, how are you? Hi, good morning, Bill. I'm doing great. How are you? Well, thank you so much for being uh, with us today, Patricia. Um, We're also joined by your colleague from the AJC, Shannon McCaffrey reporter and editor at the paper. Shannon, I did not know uh, until we talked about it right before the show started. In addition to your reporting work, you're part of the team. You're the editor on the team, uh, which includes Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman uh, dealing with the Fonnie Willis grand jury. So a little bit of a slow period right now, but things are about to get pretty hectic for you, I would imagine, Shannon. Shannon, do we have you? Yeah. Hey, sorry. Um, I am. Uh, I am not taking summer vacation. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad today you're not on vacation uh, because uh, you wrote a terrific piece about the uh, state party chairman, GOP party chairman David Schaefer, that I want to talk about when we talk about the convention coming up. Um, we're also delighted to have back with us today State Senator Kim Jackson, Democrat from Stone Mountain. And uh, Kim, we always like to point out to people that when you're not working at the legislature, you are an Episcopal priest and you um, minister to the um, homeless population. Um, So thank you very much for being here, Kim. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's always good to be with you. And we're joined by Edward Lindsay, former state representative from Atlanta, a member now of the state election board and also the uh, head of Georgia Government Affairs for uh, the uh, law firm Dentons. How are you, Edward? Doing well. Let me also add that before she had her present tenure, uh, Senator Jackson was a a, uh, priest at my Episcopal church, and so I still claim her. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Um, (laughs) This is the church where you and Mary Margaret Oliver uh, at least before the pandemic, used to teach Sunday school together, right? That's correct. It's a very uh, eclectic uh, church where all are welcome. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you for point, uh, pointing all of that out. Um, Patricia, l- let's start with the uh, convention that comes up later this week. It's, um, I think there are many Republicans who uh, are not sure exactly what to expect there. We already know that Governor Kemp, that uh, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, Insurance Commissioner John King, and probably other 
Republicans. I know some Republican panelists on this show who have said they're not going to be at the convention. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that this is a convention that is going to really be a MAGA gathering in many ways, correct? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, The Georgia Republican Party has really become a Trump echo chamber and um, that they have continued to go in that direction, even after the 2020 loss, even after the 2022 um, losses for the Trump picked primary favorites. Um, They've been obviously very aggressive toward Governor Brian Kemp booed Governor Kemp the last time he was down there. And um, probably most importantly, they have also really, excuse me, really shrunk uh, their statewide grassroots apparatus in terms of the turnout operation in a way that uh, statewide leaders have said, that's not good enough for me. I need to do my own operation. So it's really been sidelined for a variety of reasons. Shannon did a terrific piece for the AJC about the head of the party, David Schaefer, and sort of what's happened to the party under his tenure. But it has created a situation where the invited guests and the ones intent, the speakers attending now are going to be uh, Donald Trump, Carrie Lake, um, and a number of other very pro-Trump uh, voices. And it's left a situation where statewide leaders, now that they have their own access to fundraising in particular and organizing, they're just saying, you know what, I just don't need the headache right now. It's not required and I'm not going to do it. Edward, at a number of district conventions uh, last month, we know that some far right Republicans were elected to be representatives at the convention. And uh, there, it does appear that um, we're going to see that far-right trend play out this coming weekend, including uh, there's going to be an effort to declare uh, some Republicans, and I'm not quite sure, it'll be interesting to see how they define this, some Republicans who don't toe the MAGA line as traitors, using that word, traitors. Edward, what is happening to your party? (laughs) Well, you know... um... Our party, uh, like other like the other political party, have from time to time uh, veered off the the track of what I would more refer to as as mainstream. Uh, we saw that in 1988 with Robertson. Uh, we saw that in 2010 with the Tea Party movement. Uh, the The challenge will be for the next chair is to pull the party back into the mainstream and realize that the party chair and the party leaderships fundamental job is to is to raise money and to energize the grassroots uh, in the general election and not to try to get into the uh, weeds in terms of deciding who is and is not a, a good Republican. That's the role of the primaries. Uh, we've seen uh, in the past other uh, party chairmen come in after these sort of divisions and pull the party back into the mainstream. We saw that in the 1990s with uh, Rusty Paul. We saw that in the this century uh, with folks like uh, like um, John Watson and before John Watson, Sue Everhart. The most interesting one was was Ralph Reed, who is has very strong ideological beliefs. But when he was party chair, uh, made it very clear that his role was to support whoever uh, was the nominee uh, as chosen by the voters in the primaries. And he did an extremely effective job on both galvanizing the grassroots and raising money uh, for candidates. So that's the question, and that's going to be the challenge for the next chair of the Republican Party, whoever that may be, is whether or not they're going to realize what their role is uh, rather than try to engage in some type of ideological battle in determining who is and is not a, a good Republican. Uh, just like for the on the Democratic side, that that's to be decided by voters in primaries. Well, I... I, I... Kim Jackson, I, I, I know that Ed, Edward does not mean to be creating an equivalency between what's going on with the split in the Republican Party and what Democrats are dealing with. I mean, it is certainly true that Democrats aren't in lockstep about every issue, but you're not dealing with the kind of dissension that's happening over at the state GOP. 
No, that's right. Um, we are definitely not in nearly the same kind of schism that the Republicans are experiencing. And I think for my party, this is just really instructive to um, remind us of the importance of not letting what I, I believe, I, I hope, and Ed, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think this is a minority voice that just happens to be yeah. a very, very loud voice that has taken over the GOP. And so this is extremely extraordinarily instructive to my own party to make sure that um, when things like we're in a season now where things feel really good, that people continue to engage in the party process so that that minority voice doesn't take over um, and create a mess like you see in the GOP. Well, yeah, and and, and, well, and I agree. And, and when I was sort of talking, uh, Bill, what I'm talking about is, is historic, not necessarily now. Now it's, it's the Republicans' turn to have this kind of uh, schism. And they're just going to need to decide whether or not they truly want to govern or not. And that's that's ultimately the decision. Uh, Kim's party right now is in the minority in the state. And so therefore, they're 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 holding everything together. Sometimes when you get in the majority, you forget uh, how how precarious that position is. And you start shooting at each other more than you, you start focusing on, on on the important issues of governing. And that's what the Republicans are dealing with today. What, one other quick thing, and then I want to talk to uh, Shannon about David Schaefer, who's been so much a part of this, uh, uh, what's happened in the shift to the far right in the state GOP. But Edward, um, I look back, I've mentioned this on the show before, the last time we had a really, really uh, uh, hostile uh, confrontation between two wings of the Republican Party, it was 1988 when the Pat Robertson people became uh, a very loud force in the party. And, and I've mentioned on the show before, I recall that 88 convention in Albany where things got so contentious. I don't remember who the chair of the party was in 88, Edward, you may remind me, but things got so contentious that at one point the chairman was banging his gavel to get order and banged it so hard that the head of the gavel broke off and flew up into the rafters of the convention hall. Now, we don't expect that kind of, I don't think, a, a confrontational event this weekend because the non-MAGA people aren't even going to be there, right, Edward? You, you never know. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, and, you know, uh, 1988 was before I was active in, in the Republican <laughs> Party, but I do remember, you know, the, with the rise of the Tea Party uh, movement, uh, you know, the you know, the, the certain other elected Republicans uh, also got booed uh, at conventions in the late uh, and, and 2010, 2011 conventions. Uh, but fortunately, we had folks like uh, John Watson come back in and, and, and steer us back into a, a mainstream course. So you're right. I'm 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 going to sit back and uh, order popcorn and watch because uh, it's going to be interesting. S Saxby Chambliss was booed as when he was a, a yeah. senator uh, be, because he was involved in an effort to do immigration reform. Brian Kemp was booed uh, the last time he attended the convention because he refused to participate in the effort to overturn the results of the 2020 elections. So it's been and, contentious. And Governor Deal was booed. Governor Deal was booed. And as Governor well. Deal. Shannon, let me turn to uh, your story, because David Schaefer, in many ways, is the heart of all of this. If you don't mind, I'm going to read the lead first couple of graphs of the story to you. On the day he steps down as chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, David Schaefer will likely take the stage one more time with Donald Trump. For Schaefer, it marks a fitting conclusion to a tumultuous four-year tenure that has largely been defined by the former president. Perhaps no single figure in the state has done more for Trump than Schaefer from supporting his hand-picked candidates to, return to running point on a lawsuit challenging the 2020 election outcome. Shannon, uh, continue that story for us. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting because and this will date me a little bit, but um, I uh, I covered David Schaefer when I was a political reporter at the Capitol for the Associated Press back in kind of the mid to late aughts and the early 10s when he was a state senator. He later became Senate president pro tem. You know, and in that role, I remember talking to him and he was a very, very mainstream Chamber of Commerce Republican. He was talking about eliminating the state income tax. He was talking about traffic congestion. Um, you know, he was also a social conservative. He was um, very supportive of um, anti-abortion 
the anti-abortion agenda and religious liberties, et cetera. But you did not hear him sort of lobbing bombs and conspiracy theories. So when I came back to political reporting and I was out on the Herschel Walker Trail, I, I saw David Schaefer out there and it was a completely different David Schaefer, you know, what he was saying on that campaign trail. And the mere fact that he was out there with Herschel Walker, not Brian Kemp, uh, not, you know, some of the other more you know, Chris Carr, some of the other more mainstream Republicans was notable. So when I started looking into this, you know, my idea was what has happened to David Schaefer? How has he evolved? And and Mm. I don't know that he's evolved so much as adapted. Um, He really, from everyone I spoke to, you know, has sort of looked at where the party is and put himself there. Um, You know, and he would argue, um, and he did argue, that, um, you know, he is not pushing the party to the right, that the party is already there. And he's merely reflecting where they are, not pushing them in that direction. And he also points out that there's been a long history of, you know, pushback between the party and their top elected officials. As we mentioned, Saxby Chambliss, Sonny Perdue, Nathan Deal, you know, that this is nothing new. Um, I think this probably is something new. This is a, a level of division that probably we haven't seen before. But, um, but you know, his argument is just that he's reflecting the grassroots. And honestly, you know, some members of the grassroots were telling me they'd vote for him again in a heartbeat if they could. Um, Patricia, yeah. you'll weigh in on what you think. But to an extent, it what accelerated, it seems to me, David Schaefer's uh, move to the right was his surprising loss to Jeff Duncan for lieutenant governor. Now, he, I think he was already headed in a direction uh, uh, to the right, but that seemed to change uh, the way he uh, viewed politics. Do you think I've got that right, or, or am I reading too much into that? Well, I think like a lot of politicians, once uh, Schaefer lost that race, the next question is, okay, now what? And for many people in politics, how do I stay relevant? Where is the fight? Where do I need to be to keep myself in this game? And all of the energy among the Republicans at the time, this was before 2020, um, was with Donald Trump. And so that really looked like uh, the winning horse for Republicans looking to kind of make their way in the party before that split. Now he stayed so close with Donald Trump after 2020, I think that's when it started to really feel like, okay, this is a party that really is is at war with itself um, because of uh, the steps that Brad Rappensberger was taking and the steps that Brian Kemp was taking. And then David Schaefer's um, really all out willingness to encourage and support all these challenges to Georgia's own elections. And that's to me when it felt like it went really off the rails. And, but, you know, I think the biggest sin for David Schaefer, when you talk to many Republicans, is that what he's doing is just not working. They are losing elections now. Mm. And it's the losing, not the ideological shift that really can't be forgiven at this point. He's not delivering voters to the polls. His choices are making it harder for already successful incumbents to get reelected, even though they did it. They did it without his help and in some cases with his active opposition. And so um, that's a huge problem. What what people want from their party chairs is to win. And he has lost a number of elections and the elections that Republicans did win, they won without him. So we should uh, point out that he is not running for re-election, so there's an open uh, race for next party chair. Um, but Kim, l- let me ask you, oh, we should also point out, of course, as we've mentioned on the show on numerous occasions, David Schaefer is a target of Fonnie Willis's grand jury because he was, not only was he a fake elector, he basically led that charge. He brought that group together to become what they call alternate electors, preserving, they said, Um, whatever uh, rights Donald Trump would have if the election here in Georgia were overturned. But Kim, let me ask you a more philosophical question. Um, Obviously, you're on the other side of the aisle. But to what extent does having one party so far off the rails in terms of mainstream thinking, to what extent does that make an impact on all of you who are working, you know, in this democratic process at the state legislature? 
Yeah. So, I mean, fundamentally, this is not good for Georgia. Um, when you have one party that is so far to the extreme, you end up with um, bills that are fundamentally cultural wars that are not um, engaged in actually helping any Georgian with the tabletop issues that we're all facing in terms of being able to pay our own bills, making sure we have access to health care. And so this kind of extreme move is, is difficult. It also makes predictable what's going to happen in the General Assembly, extraordinarily difficult because you have these tensions within the Republican Party. You cannot predict. Um, for the first time, we saw Republicans bring bills to the Senate floor for the first time in a long time. We saw Republicans bring bills to the Senate floor and they fought against themselves, amongst themselves. And we saw bills die, which is very, very rare. Um, typically, a bill comes to the floor when you know you have the votes. Um, and so this kind of infighting, it takes up a lot of time. It means that we're not doing the work of the people because all of that is taking place. Um, and fundamentally, it's just not good for democracy. In order for our democracy to work well, we need to have two strong parties that are able to come together on issues and to compromise um, and to not be uh, infiltrated by extremists. Um, Edward, before we leave this subject and take our first break, um, let me throw one last question out your way. Over the weekend, I had a conversation with someone who I guess I would consider a mainstream Republican, not a Donald Trump MAGA uh, Republican. And his contention was that the, pendulum, that the pendulum will swing back for the party and for the country. I suggested to him that I feel it feels to me like that's a very long time before it will happen. Give us your take. Is there, is the party, the state party salvageable in the near term, or is this going to go on for a long time? Well, I would argue that at the uh, at the ballot box, where it's most important, uh, it has swung back. I mean, you saw in the 2022 election, you had uh, folks on the far ex further extremes of the Republican Party challenge a lot of our statewide elected officials uh, challenged not only the governor, uh, but also the uh, the attorney general and, and some of the others as well. Those more extreme uh, candidates, uh, even folks that that used to occupy what I would say was more the mainstream, like David like David uh, Perdue, uh, all went down and went down by wide margins. I, I may be off by a point or two, but I believe that uh, that uh, that that our governor uh, Brian Kemp beat uh, David Schaefer, not David Schaefer, but David Perdue by, by about fifty points. So I, I would argue that that at the ballot box, you're already seeing a shift back to the middle, uh, and uh, and we'll just have to see where things go from here. But let me also add one thing in agreement with Kim real quickly. Uh, you know, having served in, in, in leadership in the House, uh, she's absolutely right. Uh, we didn't bring bills to the floor unless we had a pretty good idea they were going to pass. Uh, and and that's that's some, some of the chaos that we're seeing with some new leadership in the General Assembly that's going to need to get settled down. And, and yet, finally, Shannon, as you pointed out already, there are grassroots members of the state Republican Party who said that if Schaefer were running again, They'd vote for him one more time. And um, we are likely to see a delegation head, I think, to the Republican National Convention that will have a pretty good representation of that far right element of, of the party because so many districts elected those people to be at the state convention, right? Yeah. And I mean, one of the um, one of the district chairs is, I believe, is going to be Candace Taylor, who had run for governor um, on a on a really wild platform, um, Jesus, guns and babies. But, you know, even more than that, you know, she was talking about communists uh, that, you know, she was talking about, you know, China infiltrating Georgia's economic development. I mean, she had some pretty wild things to say. I remember her debating Governor Kemp and him just looking a little startled for the whole time watching her. So, you know, it will be interesting to see how that all plays out on a national stage. Um, and yet one last comment, Patricia, we also know that just recently Candace Taylor um, has been outraged by the fact that we see so many globes uh, in schoolrooms and in homes uh, being because she knows that the earth is flat and the global uh, let's call them globalists, for want of a better word, are conspiracy theorists. That's who is now 
a district chair in the state Republican Party. Yeah, I really would not have believed that story if I hadn't seen the video myself. It is just so literally impossible to believe that a person who lives in American society today believes there is a chance that the earth could be flat. And um, she was on a podcast called The Flat Earthers and indeed said, "Why? you know, this just feels like a conspiracy to me. I mean, why are there globes everywhere? Like my kids' schools, why are there globes? Um, this is the leadership, the elected leadership of the Georgia GOP. This is why Governor Kemp is not going anywhere near Columbus. It's why Mike Pence has mysteriously canceled for a scheduling conflict that does not exist um, because they don't, this is not a real party at this point. They have a lot of work to do from top to bottom to become a party that allows for broad viewpoints, but also uh, recognizes facts at the most basic level. Okay. Uh, thank you all for a terrific start for today's show. I, I do need to get to a break. When we come back, I do want to talk a little more about this week in terms of Republicans, because Brian Kemp has uh, really taken the gloves off in terms of his criticism of Donald Trump. In, and, and this happened just a week before Trump will be uh, in Columbus for the state party convention. We'll talk about that. And then, yes, we really need to look at what's happening today at Atlanta City Council with this vote on the police training center. All that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. State Senator Kim Jackson, Edward Lindsay, Patricia Murphy, and Shannon McCaffrey join me today on Political Rewind. Uh, very, very quickly, Ed, because I really want to move on to these other subjects, but you haven't been on the show since uh, we all learned that Georgia in the 2022 election cycle had the largest turnout of any state in the South. Now, that 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 doesn't mean that some of those people who feel that the legislature after 2020, passed some statutes which may discourage people from voting, but apparently people care enough about voting that they turned out anyway. So as a member of the state election board, I guess we say congratulations. You're muted, Ed. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, hats off to the to the uh, candidates on both sides of the political aisle for getting their people out, as well as the county uh, election people uh, who ran uh, a very uh, good election in 22. And I will say this, not just the Southeast, but we, we are one of the leaders nationwide in terms of voter turnout in 22. And so hats off well, to the people of Georgia for getting out and voting. All right. Um, let's talk just for a couple minutes about Governor Kemp. Uh, really taking his most direct shot yet at Donald Trump. Patricia, um, you all wrote about it uh, in the jolt. Uh, Governor Kemp was very upset about Donald Trump's posting um, uh, over the fact that the World Health Organization had uh, uh, brought Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, uh, onto their one of their executive boards, right? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. And um, so uh, Donald Trump uh, posted his own social media um, that that uh, shouldn't have happened. Um, and uh, Governor Brian Kemp very quickly came out and said, why are you defending uh, someone, what he called a murderous dictator, uh, really pointing out very clearly that in in all American foreign policy, um, congratulating or defending Kim Jong-un is just simply a no-go. He is um, just about as ruthless a dictator as there is, and there really is no gray area on this question. Um, the 
similar message came also from Governor Ron DeSantis. And he also said that Kim Jong-un is a murderous dictator and defending him or um, coming out in favor of anything he's doing or has done is also a no-go. So I think there is, particularly in this foreign policy space, um, an area where Republicans do feel comfortable coming out directly against Trump and saying this is just totally dead flat wrong. Again, it's really not a great area we've ever had to deal with, that there could be some internal debate over how to handle North Korea. Um, But that really is where the party is right now. I I do think it also highlights, though, um, the question for Republicans, uh, even here in Georgia, while um, Governor Kemp had a huge victory in his GOP primary, all the other statewide candidates did too, except for um, uh, the lieutenant governor challenger to Burt Jones, who was uh, endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump still is getting a majority of support here among GOP voters. Um, He is still the runaway favorite. When you look at how the primary on the GOP side is shaping up, it's still very, very early, but so many facts are already known about Donald Trump. It's hard to see what else could change people's support for him. Um, So while the Georgia GOP is certainly shrinking in influence. Um, uh, the the appetite on the right for somebody like Trump or somebody exactly like Trump who is Trump is still very real. And I think that's a challenge that Republicans are going to have to work through. I don't quite know how to make sense of the fact that Governor Kemp had such a huge primary victory, but Donald Trump is still somebody who Republican voters and the state are still supportive of in a lot of ways. Um, Shannon, and then Edward, I'll, I'll let let uh, bring you in as well. Shannon, uh, at some point, uh, Governor Kemp is going to be asked whether he is going to support Donald Trump. Should Donald Trump be the nominee? And um, perhaps Kemp will uh, endorse a different candidate at some point in the process. Although he's been pretty shrewd in how he plays the political game, so I don't, I, I don't think we're going to see him decide to get on on somebody else's bandwagon anytime soon. But eventually it's going to be, if Donald Trump's a nominee, Governor Kemp, are you going to vote for him? Yeah, and that's going to be a really interesting question, right? I, I do think, too, that, you know, you've even if um, Kemp doesn't endorse someone, you saw him appear during his reelection with like Chris Christie and other people, which sort of signaled where his, um, you know, where his thinking was on some of this. Uh, it, it's it's hard to imagine. Um, we're having a little trouble with uh, Shannon's connection, so we'll we'll work on it. And Edward, you go ahead and uh, uh, speak to that. Brian Kemp, yeah, yeah. are you going to vote for Donald yeah. Trump? <laughs> well... I'm not going to speak for the governor on that. We'll see how he has to uh, has to navigate through that question. But I do think, getting back to your original point, uh, I do think foreign policy will be one of the areas in which there will there will be a very spirited debate within the Republican uh, uh, primary uh, among the various candidates. Nikki Haley uh, laid out a, a very articulate argument for not only why. It was wrong to uh, compliment Kim Jong-un, but also a, a very strong argument of why it was so critically important for the for America to back uh, the Ukrainians in their fight against uh, the, the Russian aggression. So and you're going to have folks like Chris Christie coming on board as well, who's who's a very articulate debater as well, who's prepared to take on Trump on a number of both domestic and foreign policy issues. So. While, yes, uh, the former president is is way out in front, according to early polls, we've seen other folks way out in front of early polls and then falter uh, when they have to start dealing with uh, a lot of other candidates. So um, I think it's way too early to start to anoint uh, the former president at this point. By the way, uh, Nikki Haley is in town today uh, uh, raising money and talking to people she uh, uh, is looking for support uh, from. Kim, uh, I had a different conversation. I had a number of political conversations over the weekend. And and I had one of them was with a family of people who would consider themselves very liberal Democrats. And yet at some point in the conversation, they talked about the fact that they were happy that at least Brian Kemp was basically a moderate 
uh, Republican. And I pointed out that I think there are an awful lot of people who would take issue with whether or not Brian Kemp is a moderate Republican. He may oppose Donald Trump, but, and that's a problem that I think Democrats had to contend with. And it certainly contributed to Kemp's uh, big victory over Stacey Abrams, I think. Sure. I mean, so Brian Kemp has been very clear. He is a conservative to his core. He has been a conservative. He is a conservative. He is not moderate. But when you have such a like an extreme moving party to the right, anything that's not uh, Trump, that's not MAGA, looks moderate. And so this skews the view um, for both Democrats and Republicans alike in terms of what is moderate. moderate. But it is extremely important. I think that Kemp knows that he's not a moderate. He's been really clear um, that he is a conservative. And so um, as Democrats move forward, we have to continue to um, espouse our own strong democratic policies and to talk about what a true moderate Republican looks like. And it's it's not Kemp. And that's that's no offense, no affront to him. He's been unapologetic about being conservative. That is who he is at his core. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation. Patricia, we're going to I'd like to start looking at the police training center vote today. Um, we'll probably take a break uh, in a couple of minutes and then continue after the break. But let's get the conversation started now. Uh, the setup is that today the Atlanta City Council is expected to take a vote on whether to approve what is initially a $30 million uh, uh, fund with going toward the $90 million costs of the training center. But a couple of things have happened that are creating even more controversy around this vote. One of them is uh, we've suddenly learned in the last days that, yes, it's a $30 million check out front, but there's a leaseback agreement that the city will uh, participate in, which will raise the costs to 60 plus million dollars. That's just one of the complications that adds to this question as to, if nothing else, how the city and the supporters of this training center have communicated all of this to the public. And in fact, by not doing a very good job, have created even more controversy around it. Yeah, I do think that the communication around this has just been really problematic. Um, I have a, it seems to be the case that because this was approved under Mayor Bottoms administration, and yet is now being executed by Mayor Dickens administration, it just looks like a major breakdown in um, how much do how far ahead of this do we need to be? How much controversy is there really? How much do people really understand about it? Um, it did pass through the city council before, um, but uh, it was at a time when there was so much else going on in the world. I think it, it happened. Uh, the vote happened and city officials said, OK, that's done. Let's just start building it. Um, and obviously the uh, the protests have been uh, real and getting larger, picking up national steam and um, information as it's come out now um, has uh I think been really problematic because the city's not got in front of it. It turns out that this uh, doubling of the price was part of the originally signed contract. They somebody knew this all along, but we're just now finding out about it days before a city council vote to approve um, an extra thirty million dollars at a time when thirty million dollars could go to a lot of other places in this city. Um, I think also we're starting to now see, I think, a special concern about the way it's being policed um, in terms of uh, the state uh, the state uh, troopers who had been policing it, um, along with now the involvement of the GBI and Attorney General Chris Carr in bringing charges against people who are um, helping to fund the bail release uh, funds for the protesters who had already been arrested. Um, there was a very public arrest of a, a video of a heavily armored car going into an Atlanta neighborhood, um, <clears throat> more than a dozen APD piling out of it in full riot gear um, in order to arrest these three, <clears throat> these three people on uh, money laundering charges. And it just feels like a real disconnect. It's also sort of the visible embodiment of what protesters are warning about what the center is all about, militarized policing. Um, 
It is a huge communications problem. We'll find out. It's also a political problem. It's now we're going to find out if this is a functional problem that the city can work through. Um, Dickens has said the police need training. They need a place to train. Um, But they've got major problems that have spiraled almost outside of their control. Kim? Yeah, I mean, I agree with what Patricia has just named that uh, this is this is a massive problem. You know, even I listened to the top of the line that uh, National NPR does about Atlanta and they said it's 30 million dollars. No, it's not 30 million dollars. It's 60 million dollars. That's a big difference. Um, And so the communication problems are significant. Um, The optics of sending in armed riot gear, you know, SWAT team for what is essentially what they're um, they're being charged of is basically charities fraud, right? Um, I mean, it's like going into a nonprofit and being like, we're going to bring all the guns in because you've you've been doing things that we're not even clear, um, according to the judge, has a whole lot of meat to it. So this is extraordinarily problematic. You know, I I am very aware, as I sit at the Capitol, just across the street from the city of Atlanta um, council where people are gathering that there will be hundreds of protesters once again who um, express their grave concern about this. Um, The trouble with this is that Mayor Dickens has some really good reasons for why he wants to bring this forward. Um, And there are some, I think, some strong facts to be named. The fact is that even though this will cost the city of Atlanta $60 million, it's still less than what we pay to rent facilities today. Um, the fire, I'm a former EMT, so fire and rescue, they need a good place to train. Um, the fact is driving, driving a fire truck through the city of Atlanta is complicated. So you want a good training facility. However, all of those good reasons get lost in the messiness of a young man being murdered, essentially, for what people might understand now, in the middle of a forest while defending you know, a forest. And then now the numbers are twice as much, right? So as good as the argument may be, this has gotten really, really messy. Okay, I want to continue this conversation and bring in Shannon and Edward in a moment, but let's get to our final break of the show before we do that. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about the Atlanta Police Training Center. By the way, City Hall has been shut down today because there are going to be so many protesters. There are concerns about what could happen if police and the protesters have any kind of clash whatsoever. Police presence has ratcheted up as well. Edward Lindsay, uh, before the break, uh, Kim Jackson made an important point. Of course, law enforcement needs a place to train in the best methods for policing Um, and, and to train in a way that, in fact, deals with what so many critics of how cops police their communities Uh, to do it better. But this has been so badly botched that it's hard to see that message coming through, Edward. Well, that is a a frustration that I and a a lot of the other folks who support uh, this facility feel about what's 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 gone on in the last few months. And and quite frankly, uh, part of my criticism and I've got two good friends on this panel from the media is 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 with the media because I, I don't see that much of a, a deep dive uh, from my friends in the media uh, as to why this facility is so important. And and the fact of the matter is we need public safety in Atlanta. I live in Buckhead, but folks in Bankhead <laughs> in every corner of my city uh, want to have safe streets and want to have uh, public safety uh, take place. Want to have the the fire uh, uh, trucks show up on time, and and this sort of facility is extremely important that, that we do so. And and so you know, but so I, I am frustrated that that part of the message doesn't get out. And I do want to want to make sure folks do understand who are listening is that when we talk about sixty million, we're not talking about sixty million paid up front. Uh, we're talking about thirty million paid up front, and and then uh, a, a yearly payment. 
of about 1.2 million, Patricia, is that right? Uh, a year after that, which is less uh, than what the city is presently paying for training at much at at, at inadequate facilities. So, uh, and, and yes, that that should have been articulated better early on too, and I and I do agree about that. But the fact of the matter is, this is a facility that's that's desperately needed uh, and needs to move forward. Uh, and yes, the folks who are proponents of it, and including myself. Uh, need to be do a better job at articulating why it's so important. Shannon, let's pick up again on this raid that both Patricia and Kim referred to last week, this extraordinary police presence. I mean, an armored car, they arrested three people, charged them with money laundering, I think fraud, um, and they contend uh, that what they're doing is ra- doing what any civil rights organization has done for decades, raising money for bail for individuals who are arrested, and yet they too could be charged with domestic terrorism. And Shannon, uh, there may be good reasons for the arrest, but the timing is just another example of an incredible misstep. Um, Although city officials say they weren't even informed about this until it was over with, this was state law enforcement. Shannon? Yeah, I mean, this just seems like a big unforced error. Um, yeah, the uh, the whole criti- well, one of the main criticisms of this facility is that it's going to militarize police, um, and you know the the. Uh, supporters have pushed back on that and talked about the need for better training. We constantly hear about that when there are police shootings, that we need better training, better training. Um, and yet they they come in and basically prove their critics right um, by showing that this is the technique they're going to use. It really does seem um, botched. Um, wh- whoever whoever implemented it, I mean, I understand that the city officials have had said that they had nothing to do with this, but, but at the same time, you know, it really does feel like the time is absolutely poor. And, you know, it's worth noting that a lot, you know, a lot of the arrests that have happened in this, you know, and the AJC has um, done some reporting on this is from is from people who are outside the state. I mean, this is there are certainly tons of, you know, lots and lots of opponents here in Metro Atlanta and in Georgia. But, you know, so many of these arrests have come, you know, for, who were the folks who were down at the facility have come from people who are outside Georgia. So this, you know, whole stop cop city branding has become Become sort of a national black eye. Patricia, um, the we 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 think that the order to make these arrests came from the attorney general's office, from Chris Carr. At least I think Bill Torpy reported that in his column this morning. Yes, he reported that it was an order from Chris Carr executed by APD because it's in APD's jurisdiction. So that's how uh, sort of that was the sequence uh, of events. He also in his column, and I would recommend people read Bill Torpy's column today. He said that the house itself um, has a sign on it that says make my day pig and bring a warrant next time. So it is it was not your average white picket fence situation, um, (laughs) but the video that emerged wasn't of the house or um or of the protesters it was of those police and riot gear piling out of um an armored vehicle and so it was just startling on any average afternoon um but i i do um think that um ed lindsay and others who have a number of reasons that they say this should happen um and the the ajc has about 10 articles up on it (laughs) right now on the ajc's front page really need to be making that case loud and clear. And Dickens himself has made it maybe several times. He needs to make it about a hundred times um, until he really feels like he's gotten his message across. It doesn't feel like it's happening quite yet. Kim, quick final comment on this. Yeah. So here's what I know, Bill. I know a number of people who've been protesting Cop City and who will continue to do so. And they are scared. They are afraid of being arrested. They are afraid of being charged with domestic terrorism. Um, And one of the core principles of our nation is that we have the right to protest. And so um, I am disappointed and I'm sad that we are living in a time where protesters, um, organizers, people who are pastors who've been doing this work for a really long time, where they are suddenly afraid to legally and lawfully raise their voice in opposition to something, which is our right, um, because they are afraid that charges will be brought against them that are absolutely unnecessarily, um, absolutely unnecessary and extraordinarily aggressive. So that deeply saddens me as we have this whole conversation. 
Well, we're going to watch how all of this plays out. It could be a very dramatic day. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Patricia, before we leave today, we've only got a couple minutes, but I do want to uh, give you a chance to mention your column in which you welcome Marjorie Taylor Greene to the mainstream of political thinking, (laughs) given that she supported Kevin McCarthy in the compromise over the debt ceiling measure, and now is being attacked by people like Steve Bannon, who is urging a a, a challenge to her in the primary next time. (laughs) Yes, I thought it was very important for the country to avoid defaulting on its debt. It was just totally untenable. And so to see Marjorie Taylor Greene do something that was very rational for reasons that she laid out that were very clear and made a lot of sense and would make sense to anybody. I found um, difficult to process mentally, but I did want to take note that she had done that. Now she's getting like clockwork. She's getting blowback from the right. And so, you know, she said, I live in reality, not in a conservative fantasy land. Um, And I said to uh, my colleagues that, well, maybe it's just a rental. I don't know how long she's here to be in the land of reality, but she was there for that moment, and I wanted to write a column about it. (laughs) And and it was a great column, and I urge people to read it. And just a couple of of seconds. She is also very shrewd. She knows that standing by Kevin McCarthy gives her power that she never had as an outsider before she supported him for speaker. Oh man, she I mean, is, she is playing playing the inside game. She is she's yeah, very shrewd, and on this she's very shrewd, and on this this situation she's very right. And I'm very proud of the uh, the ten uh, Republican and Democratic congressmen in Georgia who voted yes, and the two uh, and the two our uh, two U.S. senators, uh, because that's what adults do. Uh, you, you don't get everything you want uh, when divided government. So you, you govern. And and I'm very proud of of those members of our delegation who voted. Yes. All right. Um, Edward Lindsay, you get the last word on today's political rewind. Thank you, Edward, for being here. Senator Kim Jackson, always a pleasure. Shannon McCaffrey, Patricia Murphy, thank you for getting the week off to such a good start today on political rewind. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye, everybody.